0: Hello, and welcome to the So, You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Muzia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, where does the salmon go to deposit a check? To the riverbank. Do you know what it's like to be a fish? I don't, but Alaska Salmon. Today's guest is Nick Mink, Professor of Environmental Science and the co-founder and CEO of Sitka Salmon Shares, a direct-to-consumer sea-to-table company. Join us as we chat about community supported fisheries, why small generational fisheries are important, and what you can do to help the fish that swim in the sea. At the end of the episode, Nick shares an incredible experience he had with a whale while out on a fishing trip, so stay tuned for that. Please enjoy. Nick Ming, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I'm excited to chat fish and fisheries with you today. Yeah,
1: hey, I'm excited to also chat fish and fisheries with you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So before we get into that, I want to take a step back. You majored in history and kind of evolved into environmental studies and environmental science a little bit. So, could you tell me a little bit more about what prompted to make the shift?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, my original major was in business and I flunked out of business school. So, that was it was easy for me to become a historian. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, my historical background was in environmental history, so I've always been really interested in the ways that humans have shaped landscapes Mm -hmm. and landscapes have changed how society and culture have unfolded and also how humans have understood the idea of nature. So that was kind of my historical background. So it wasn't like a traditional political or economic history training. My training had always been in environmental history and understanding the ways that just people have used the environment in the past. So it's not that big of a separation going from kind of that field of study to environmental studies. But as my career has unfolded and as my graduate training unfolded, I found myself becoming more and more interested in the environmental component of the history stuff. And it it wound up me Um, taking a job in an environmental studies department about 10 years ago at a little college called Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois. So that kind of completed, I guess, my environmental turn from really spending about 10 years doing a lot more history stuff and, and teaching history at a couple of UW, University of Wisconsin campuses in the 2000s. And then the aughts being my time that I really kind of transitioned over to environmental studies.
0: Okay. What kind of prompted the transition?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm really interested in food. And my interest in food and food systems really prompted that shift. I found myself being really fascinated by the ways that our food choices affected ecologies and landscapes. And so that's really what prompted that shift. And that all kind of took place like, There's this book by Michael Pollan called Omnivore's Dilemma. And there's like a big awakening about like kind of how we put foods in our bellies and how that affects the environment. I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, it became Mm -hmm. more popular. Now it just kind of seems commonplace, right? That everyone's thinking about how our environmental, uh, how our food choices affect the environment. But that was kind of new, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And that's really... When I began to start caring more and more about the environmental studies and the environmental science, really kind of behind our food choices and like looking at how everything from food production to food manufacturing, even to food marketing affected and has affected our, our landscapes and our environment. So, you know, really that was the, the turning point is as I became more and more interested in, in food systems and food studies.
0: Was there a particular example of a food landscape that really intrigued you and made you want to dive more into it? Yeah, I mean,
1: this might sound weird, but one of my earliest things was I was really interested early on in how 19th century, early 19th century American colonization or colonialism or imperialism, kind of that march westward, that Western movement of uh, Euro-Americans into the Midwest, how that was like facilitated by livestock <laughs> and how livestock, particularly pigs and cows, influenced and affected not only how the landscape was settled and it, it affected the colonization of the landscape, but also how it affected our food. I became really fascinated and almost wrote my dissertation on pig breeding in the 19th century and hmm. how pig breeding was really this, like, really unique lens to see the intersection of food and science and landscape and American culture in the 19th century. So, like, that was kind of my earliest foray, like, in an academic sense of exploring those ideas. And, and then the next one is where kind of some of the marine stuff came from wow. is I had the chance to write a seminar paper probably 17 years ago, 18 years ago now. And I, I kind of wanted it to be a fun topic. And I grew up in Miami, Florida, of course, surrounded by oceans, which is not too far from where you are. Yep. And I had this really strong memory in my head about my parents going and eating stone crabs on their birthday in Miami at a very famous restaurant there called Joe's Stone Crab. And mm-hmm. I started asking questions about that, why that was. And I've kind of found myself going back to that story and uncovering it and unpacking it a little bit and really finding out, you know, how much that ritual that they participated in in the seventies and eighties when I was growing up was very much tied to this very iconic South Florida landscape and marine biology and marine ecology and I wrote that seminar paper and I published maybe three or four articles from it. It became like, I don't know, like in the general ability to not become famous in academia, I like I think like a few people read those articles on the Stone Crab fishery in South Florida. And and really that in some small way launched me into the salmon business, really being it really finding a lot of interest in how people who lived along the coasts affected their environments and how their environments affected their food supply through this study of the stone crab consumption and production in South Florida from about the 1920s to the 1980s.
0: Could you go a little bit more into that? What did that look like and how were people kind of impacting their landscape through stone crab?
1: Oh, it's been so long. I don't even know if I can recall. I mean, (laughs) you know, this was What was really interesting about stone crab consumption in South Florida is it really was a a food that was, or maybe we would call them a trash fish or a rough fish in modern parlance, but stone crabs as a food really were not important Mm -hmm. to people in the peoples of South Florida until really tourism took hold in the 1920s and 1930s there and how that how the crab then kind of became a way to connect with that landscape for tourists. And and the desire of people eating them, of course, led to overfishing in local waters, led to the expansion of the fishery further and further south and west of Florida instead of in the east coast of Florida, and how that led to management. And how that, of course, it was, you know, it's this positive feedback loop where how that Management uh, led to increased prices, which led to greater value for those crabs. Uh, that and then, you know, my parents emerge in South Florida in 1973, and they started eating a Joe Stone crab for their birthdays, and it becomes this very, very important ritual for them. And still, in many ways, whenever I go back down to Miami or the Florida Keys, and like many tourists, I'm all I'm searching out stone crab, and that that desire to eat those crabs, which are very much tied to the landscape, and kind of seen as a regional delicacy or a local delicacy, of course, affects everything from habitat to predator-prey relationships to fisheries management and so on. And I I mean, I don't really know if I knew what I was doing when I first wrote those few that seminar paper and those first few articles, but really, I mean, in some small way that became the baseline for my understanding of my broader interest in fisheries now
0: yeah so let's dive more into your your interest in fisheries now how did sika salmon shares get started i heard it was just a fateful trip to Sitka, alaska
1: yeah sit sitka, sitka like the the uh oh, like the tree okay uh yeah i mean it's a long story and it's a short one but i was after I wrote that stone crab paper, I was, you know, increasingly interested in food and and had the chance to move up to Alaska for the summer and began working with a few salmon fishermen and in the process of doing that really met some amazing people and amazing. I mean, for me, getting to this place where there were still these like small, small holders, these small scale food producers that were getting up every morning and making a living off the land. It was profound. It was an amazing moment for me and really went up there doing a lot more at first in the education realm and the policy realm and the mm. advocacy realm for some of these small scale salmon. And and kind of that led to me meeting a couple of our first fishermen at Sitka Salmon Shares, and uh, us working with a local conservation society to begin to build an eco-label is kind of how Sick of Salmon Shares began that helped to define the attributes of a particular place and help to tell the story and communicate the story. One of these amazing small-scale fishermen who really don't exist in very large numbers anymore mm-hmm. and two of this incredibly pristine environment in Southeast Alaska, where you still have large swaths of habitat still intact. You still have pretty healthy fish populations and you have management that's in large part there to support them. So we worked with the conservation society in Sitka where I was working to basically transport fish from a few of these fishermen back to the Midwest, where I was then teaching at a little small college in environmental studies and the first shipment, like we flew it into O'Hare Airport. It was like 150 pounds. My uncle picked me up in the back of, threw the fish in the back of his pickup truck. And the story unfolds to where now, you know, we have tens of thousands of members, several dozen fishermen who own part of the company. We buy fish from another several dozen fishermen. And uh, we're really doing our best as a company to try to build a a seafood system that supports the livelihoods of these small-scale producers, who in turn are by far the best stewards of the natural resource than I can possibly imagine. And for them, they get to harvest fish in a way that is focused on value, not volume, meaning they catch less fish and they make more money for it, which of course is a win-win for the environment. But it's also a win-win for consumers who get a higher quality fish and get to support these small-scale family producers, who, many cases, are second generation, third generation, fourth generation, fifth generation fishermen. Mm-hmm.
0: You talk about small scale, and the and the opposite of that is industrialized fishing. So could you explain a little bit why you were so taken with the fishermen in Alaska compared to what industrialized or common food sources are?
1: Yeah. I mean, when you think of most commercial fisheries, I would say, and and most fish that we buy at a grocery store is from what might be considered an industrial source, Mm -hmm. whether that's aquaculture or capture fisheries or wild fisheries. Most of it is either farmed or harvested at an incredibly large scale. Uh, For most of our harvested or wild harvested fish that's Harvested industrially, most of it's done by a method of capture called trawling, where a boat that's anywhere between a hundred and hundred fifty foot in length that has dozens of crew members on it. It's basically a factory in the water, mm-hmm. pulls a giant net through the water and brings up in that net anywhere between tens of dozens to hundreds of dozens of tons. So you're looking at an industrial trawler catching hundreds of thousands of pit fish in a net. It's truly an amazing feat of technology. And that's again how most of the fish that we buy in our grocery store are harvested. It's, you know, when when you get any white fish, fish sticks or fish fillet, I mean that's that's your standard that's your standard piece of fish that we're eating in America and when it's wild mm-hmm caught. These small-scale fishermen in Southeast Alaska, there's a few thousand of them, a few thousand permit holders. Instead of having boats that are 100, 150 feet in length, their boats are 30, 40, 50 feet in length. They're not owned by big corporations. They're owned by families. Usually instead of having dozens of crew members, they have one or two crew members. And generally that can be an aunt or an uncle or a son or a daughter or mother or father. And instead of harvesting hundreds of thousands of pounds in a net a day, they're harvesting in a good day, hundreds of pounds of fish. And so the scale is profoundly different than your your typical fisheries. And, and uh, it's really a unique kind of situation that fishermen still like like that still exists in the 21st century. And they exist in large part in Southeast Alaska in the greatest numbers because there's pretty good policies in place there to protect them. They have family traditions that um, pass generations, pass these boats down from generation to generation to generation. So there's people that still know how to do it um, and they have a family reason to continue it. And also you have a relatively healthy, pristine environment that allows these smaller scale fishermen to uh, survive and, and even even thrive. And so, you know, it's just a it's it's a unique way to harvest fish from the ocean. And you can kind of compare it to many more people know about farming. And, you know, most of the U.S., it's our farming is done by pretty large scale, you know, what we would call conventional farmers doing commodity crop agriculture. And then on the other hand, you have the the mom and pop operations that sell at our local farmers markets. And that analog is pretty similar to our larger scale fisheries. That is most of the fish that we eat. Well just like conventional farming is most of the food that we eat versus the smaller scale fishermen and these smaller scale farmers. Who, um, for the reasons that they sell at farmers' markets, are the same reasons why our our fishermen at Sika Salmon Shares at least need our our help and support and are very enthusiastic about working for us and selling to us because they're usually they need to find better marketplaces for their fish in order to survive in this in this world of industrial fisheries.
0: One of the things that I really liked about Sika Salmon Shares is that it helps to promote generational fisheries, but also. You know, like you mentioned, you have these giant trawlers going out collecting untold amounts of fish, and some of it is used and some of it is bycatch. Comparatively to that, I mean, what does sustainable fisheries look like and what does fishing look like on these family-owned boats?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it has a couple characteristics, right? When we look at a family operation versus a larger scale operation, I mean, it's the difference between harvesting fish in an incredibly efficient way, Mm -hmm. which is large scale trawling. I mean, they fish indiscriminately, you know, whatever's in that net, they catch and they bring on board. And what you said is the term bycatch, which is fish that's caught that is not meant to be caught and oftentimes discarded and thrown overboard, which is a huge problem. Mm -hmm. But when you look at these smaller scale mom and pop operators, sometimes that can be called more sustainable there's a couple of characteristics. I mean, one, they're almost always using lower impact methods of fishing. And what that means is they're using ways to harvest the fish that minimize the impact on the environment. For us in Sitka, most of our fishermen are using hook and line, meaning they're catching every single fish on a single hook. They're bringing those fish on board individually if they're not a targeted species, meaning if it's bycatch, they can often release them back in the water where they continue to go about their merry way. But just the fact that they're pulling hooks in line through the water as opposed to pulling giant nets probably leaves, some studies say, Eighty percent of the biomass that's down in the ocean there, right? So just you know, think about pulling a giant net through a, uh, let's call it a school of salmon. If it's a giant net, you're going to catch every single one of them. If you're pulling hooks and lines through them, you might catch one out of every five fish. I mean, and then start thinking at that at a magnitude of a couple of dozen hooks as opposed to nets that are the size of commercial airlines. And you begin to start understanding the magnitude of the ecological change that a large industrial trawler can bring to a landscape and the ecological change that a small scale fisherman can bring to the landscape. So besides using lower impact gear, you know, largely hook and line. The other really big difference that I don't think people think about all the time is that most of these smaller scale fishermen, these mom and pop operators, they live in the communities where they fish and they can only really travel, let's say 50 to 70 miles away from that community to be able to harvest their fish. That's it's basically, it's their fishery shed. It's how far their boats will go. And when you think about that for a second, um, as opposed to an industrial trawler that can go for miles and mi- you know, tens of thousands of miles across the, the world, or at the very least, hundreds and hundreds of miles, say, up from Seattle to the Bering Sea, or from a port in Norway down to the South Pacific. When you have a small-scale community-based or local fisherman, and they know they only really have these 50 to 70 miles to harvest fish from, they they like have a land ethic, right? Mm-hmm. Where they know that in that little sphere that they harvest fish from, they want those fish to be there forever. Mm-hmm. As opposed to an itinerant industrial trawler that their mentality or their how they operate is they just figure that they can go anywhere in the world and catch fish and if there is a local resource depletion, meaning if they if they hammer a particular fishery in one place, They just feel like they can go to the next place, right? Local small-scale fishermen don't do that. They can't do that. They don't have the technology or the boats to do that. And so what that produces is a really strong environmental ethic in these small-scale fishermen who live in places like Sitka, who live in places like Juneau, who live in places like Anchorage, where they're active in fisheries politics to protect the resource. They're always advocating for really conservative management of fisheries so that they can catch fish the next year and catch fish the next year and their grandkids can catch fish and their great great grandkids can catch fish because this is their little distinct environment that they harvest fish in and you know again that's that's really similar to agriculture as well when when you have farmers that really stay put over generations and centuries they really want to make sure that that land is viable in into perpetuity. So you know, when we look at when we look at fisheries, that's those are the two biggest differences that small scale guys have against the larger industrial actors.
0: Absolutely. One of the other things I really liked is that you know that which boat your fish came from, which I thought was really fun and and also important so that you kind of have an idea of for them what exactly fish they're catching and you can have that that uh, it brings it a little bit more home. It's not just like a, a fish that you got at the grocery store. It it actually it connects you to where the fish came from and how it was harvested. So I thought that was a really cool thing oh, that you thanks. guys do.
1: Yeah, our fish is all traceable back to the source. Yeah, And that's key to the transparency we want to bring to the system. So much of our seafood comes from areas or companies or marketplaces where it's totally opaque and you don't understand where your food comes from. And the transparency is great for consumers and it's great for our fishermen. One of our fishermen loves to say that you're going to catch better fish (laughs) and you're going to catch a higher quality. You're going to take better care of that fish when you know your boat's on it, Mm -hmm. right? If your boat name isn't on it and your personal name isn't on it and you're selling to larger commodity markets... Why go the extra mile to take care of a fish in a way that it should be taken care of if your name's not on it or you're not going to have an economic incentive to, you know, in our DNA is making sure that our fish is traceable back to uh, uh, back to the source. And that keeps everybody honest and it really helps consumers understand a really opaque, like I said, opaque part of the food chain, but also for our, our fishermen, it helps them. They, they also like to know who's at the end of their line, so to speak.
0: Right. Absolutely. You mentioned earlier that your fishermen work really closely with the management side and are advocating for good policy so that they can have generations of fishermen as well in their family. What does that look like from the management side? What are they What are they looking at or how do they collect their data to make these management decisions?
1: Yeah, fisheries management, particularly in Alaska, is very science-based. We have fisheries biologists, there's probably several dozen of them working in Sitka alone, who are constantly monitoring, monitoring these fisheries, making sure that, the, for instance, the predictive models that they laid out are accurate, Making sure that the fisheries, meaning the harvesting of fish, is happening in a way that is expected by the fleet members. Making sure that, you know, there's not anomalies in the composition of the biomass or in catch rates or in the size of some of these fish. And fishermen actively help with that. Our fishermen are kind of scientists themselves because nobody knows these oceans better than most of them. And they're working hand in hand with with these fisheries managers to ensure that as a fishery takes place or in the parlance of, in, in our language, it's called prosecuting a fishery. As a fishery is prosecuted, scientists know what's going on, that the models are being adhered to. And that in a, in a simple way, you know, our fishermen are recording for many fisheries, every single fish they harvest, they're, they're recording the date of harvest, they're recording the times of harvest, they're recording how many hooks they have in the water, they're recording where and when, uh, where those fish are harvested at particular latitudes and longitude. And they're bringing that all back to the dock. Where that's being fed into our systems in Alaska and our models in Alaska to ensure, again, we have a really good understanding of what fish are doing so that we can harvest the right amount of fish, right? And the total allowable catch is the TAC, mm-hmm. is what it's called in fisheries. And, you know, you really, depending a little bit on the fishery, you really only wanna harvest between maybe two and 50% of the total biomass to ensure. That that fishery continues sustainably or in perpetuity, and it's this work these fishermen do on the grounds and the record keeping they do on the grounds, and then report back on the dock um, through a wide variety of reporting mechanisms, ensures that you know our scientists and our fisheries managers really know what's going on. And then beyond that, uh, there's a lot of different ways our fishermen get into fisheries policy and advocacy. Uh, we have a wide variety of different advocacy groups in. Southeast Alaska that are there specifically to advocate for the healthy use of our natural resources and healthy fisheries. A couple of the groups that come to mind is there's a group called the Alaska Trollers Association, which is a group of small-scale fishermen, salmon fishermen, Alaska Longline Fishermen's Association, Alaska Marine Conservation Council. Groups like these are nonprofits that are specifically there for fishermen to ensure that they have healthy biomasses moving forward. And many of our fishermen have played it in Sitka and at the company Sitka Salmon Shares have played a really important role in governance and in even forming some of these science and policy organizations that ensure that we have a healthy resource for generations to come. So yeah, it's really connected. Like sometimes people think like there is an adversarial relationship between fishermen and scientists who are like, I think in the, in the modern mind, or in at least in some readings you do about fisheries, like on the one hand you have scientists who are saying, no, don't catch any more fish. And on the other hand, you have fishermen who are like, we have to catch more fish. And that's a very simplistic rendering of the situation. And for the most part, our fishermen are our most vocal advocates for conservative fisheries management because as they'll all say nobody wants to catch the last
0: fish yeah absolutely it makes sense it's it's heartening to hear how closely they work and how much data is collected that they they freely turn over to the management and the managing bodies so that's really cool do you go fishing with them I do. Um, okay. I'm heading up.
1: I'm filming this from Madison, Wisconsin right now, but I'm heading up in a couple of weeks to do a little fishing. I can never call myself a fisherman. I mean, <laughs> what our fleet members do, our skippers and our deckhands is truly amazing. Their knowledge of oceans, their knowledge of mechanics, their knowledge of meteorology and weather and carpentry and everything. I mean, it's really an amazing composition of skills. And in many ways, it takes years and years and decades and decades to learn. That's why it's a a trade, like becoming a baker, becoming a butcher. I mean, it's just something that takes years and years and years and years to learn. Generally, I go out on a trip or two. Last year was kind of interesting because of COVID and we're still kind of in the middle of this pandemic, but, but I could never really call myself a fisherman. I'm like more of a spectator uh, <laughs> who they put up with because I help them sell their fish at a higher price <laughs> and develop better marketplaces for this amazing artisanally caught high quality fish. So they tolerate me when I'm on the boats and I, I try to do no harm but I, I couldn't call myself a fisherman even though I'll be out on a fishing boat helping one of our skippers here in a couple of weeks <laughs> To the or, or hurting him. I hope I'm not hurting him, but I, I'll try to help him.
0: <laughs> there you go. Well, it's nice you get to get out on the boat every now and again and not just have to work behind the scenes. Would you explain a little bit of, of behind the principle of the community shares fishery and kind of how that works for Sika salmon shares?
1: Yeah. So we are a community supported fishery and I think a lot of people have heard of community supported agriculture or a CSA where a local farmer sells a portion of their crops to a group of sometimes a couple dozen to sometimes a couple hundred people who get together and say, Hey, we're going to support this farmer. And once a week, we're going to get something from this farmer. And it's going to be what's in season. It's going to be what they grew. It's going to help them mitigate the risk if, hey, the green peppers weren't doing super good this year. So we're going to give everybody a bunch of tomatoes or uh, lettuces have been great because the weather has been cool, but it never got hot. So you're not going to get corn this year. But, you know, again, more lettuce. And so in many ways, our community supported fishery and community supported fisheries across the country mirror that. People sign up at the beginning of a fishery season, and once a month, we get them a box of fish that's seasonally harvested from small boat fishermen. We don't entirely guarantee the poundage, and we don't entirely guarantee the harvest because we don't really know. We, these, these populations are changing so quickly because of climate change we know there's fish out there. We know they're going to be harvested. We know the broader contours of it, of different seasons. But when you get down to the details, you don't know if a boat's going to come back with fish or not. You don't know if a boat's going to have a really good king salmon season or a really good coho salmon season. We don't know how our crabbers are going to do. So we really model it on being very... Aware of what's happening in nature and very aware of what's happening in the oceans. We educate our CSF participants in a way that says, hey, you know, you might not know what you're going to get this month, kind of like in a CSA, but you do know that you are going to get the highest quality seasonally harvested fish from a small boat fisherman that you can get. And that is a more important value to us than, and to our members, than saying, you are definitely going to get five pounds of sockeye salmon from this river system this summer, because we don't know if a river system is going to be producing the type of salmon that managers think it's going to produce. And we we need to build flexibility into our model in order to be able to help our fishermen to harvest what is there and for the environment and for the local ecology, which is we don't want to be going after a fish that's really not having a great season just because we told our, uh, our markets that we were going to get it. And and simultaneously, we don't want to be pushing our fishermen to do something that's unsafe because we said we're going to be able to deliver a certain type of fish. And we, we really are embrace that type of model, which is we're going to let nature guide the harvest. We're going to let our fishermen guide the harvest. And what we're going to produce, what we're going to provide for our consumers or our subscribers, is a type of fish that they know is going to be caught from a small boat fisherman. That's going to support that fisherman in ways that they don't have available to them on a larger marketplace and is going to do the least ecological harm that we can do in harvesting these fish. And it's been a Great model for us. There are more and more community supported fisheries along the coasts. I think there's there's one that operates in Island Marada down your way. Mm-hmm. I, I think they deliver into Miami. I don't think they go up further north. But we, there's there was a couple dozen of these community supported fisheries when we started about eleven seasons ago, and now there's a few hundred, and it's great. It's great to see local fishermen kind of try to get away from these larger markets and these commodity markets and sell fish for themselves and to put a little bit more money in their pockets, make their operations more viable, and at the same time, get consumers a better product than what they would normally find at a grocery store, much in the same way that our local farmers do at our farmers markets or our local CSA members, local CSA farmers do for their members, because we know how different a grocery store supply chain is for vegetables and meat. We know how different that is than your supply chain when you go to a local farmer's market. We don't necessarily have that same understanding of fish and fisheries, but the same principles apply. When you walk into a grocery store, it doesn't matter which one, you're almost exclusively gonna get a large boat harvested industrial commodity product or large global aqua a product of large global aquaculture. There's just there's no way small scale fishermen of which there's, you know, still A few in the United States are able to offer a product competitively through that supply chain without having to just fish for volume instead of value. And these small scale operators that have boats that are 30 to 35 or 40 feet, they just they can't compete against Mm -hmm. uh, uh, these large scale industrial trawlers or boba aquaculture.
0: Right. Right. Makes total sense. And it's better for the ocean. They're catching a target species, and they're not kept dragging up what did you say, hundreds of dozens of tons of fish and worst case scenarios? Yeah, so yeah. better for the oceans, It's better for the fishermen, and it's better for yeah. us. You know what it is that you're eating and where it's coming from. I love this. So, one of my favorite questions to ask, and we're kind of butting up on the end of time here, but do you have a favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could just be like a fun day that you had out fishing and like you caught the big one, or it could be a day that you you went out and things happened, and now it's a great story. Oh yeah, one thing that
1: just came to mind is we had a a local, or uh, people in the Midwest know him. His name's Charlie Behrens. He does the Manitowoc Minute.
0: Yeah, my husband's from Wisconsin. I'm very familiar with him.
1: <laughs> okay, yeah. Anybody that has a Packers fan in their family knows Charlie Behrens. Yeah. So anyway, he's kind of a friend of the company. We took him out fishing just three weeks ago. I was up in Alaska. I oftentimes do the commute. It's a pretty long, it's almost a 24-hour commute up there, but we just had a totally spectacular day on the water. Charlie caught a couple fish, but the most spectacular thing that happened is as we were out there filming, we had cut the engines, and we're in like a little 16-foot skiff, and we had this enormous gray whale, probably 60 to 70 feet in length come up to our boat in Sitka Sound and just floated over to us and decided he wanted to use our boat as a little scratching station uh, <laughs> to scratch barnacles off of his his little snout and uh, I don't know if that's a technical term but it was just the most amazing experience we could ever imagine we sat there for an hour while this gray whale just used our our boat which you know he or she was four or five times the size as this little scratching station and it was one of the most amazing experiences in nature that I've ever had to feel like the power of of the water coming out of the whale's blowhole and like looking at this gray whale in its eyes and kind of seeing it as a sentient being. And I've I've experienced a lot of amazing things in Alaska and had incredible experiences with nature and the natural world there. But just the fact that that happened three weeks ago and the fact that it, it was such a cool experience to have this just like intimate hour with this incredible creature was something I'll never forget. I, and I, I make sure not to because I took like, I mean, all of us, there's like four of us on the boat and we just all sat there. I mean, it's kind of sad, right? We're all sitting there on our iPhones the whole time mm. <laughs> um, taking pictures of it. But it was a really cool thing. And it really just, it, it helped helped me understand like and reinforced to me how much we want to keep these environments protected. And, and so that my kids and my kids' kids can have those types of experiences for years to come.
0: What a special moment. That's so cool. Were you guys scared at all? Was the whale pushing the boat as it scratched?
1: Uh, there was one time where we're like, whoa, that was a, a moment. <laughs> you know, and this is, you know, the water's 39 degrees and you probably have a, a less than 10 minutes in it if you fell in. But yeah, there was one little time where we're like, oh, that was a little more than we kind of <laughs> or she kind of lifted the boat out of the water more than just before I was like you know it'd come up and scratch its nose on our prop and you could see it taking the barnacles off of off of itself with our prop and rubbing up against but there was one time where I was like oh that was that was a little more than we bargained for <laughs> kept you on your toes a little bit more uh yeah a little bit that was the, that was, actually that was when we were like
0: oh maybe we should get going now <laughs> probably a good call she's like what is this toy here
1: yeah she definitely saw us as a big little toy to have fun with for the afternoon we felt comfortable enough that we had the ability to kind of just it swam away just far enough that we could turn the engine back on and kind of whisk out of there as quickly and safely as we could but it was kind of a sad moment to like we we almost felt like we'd made friends
0: no with her what a special experience that's really cool. I like to leave the audience with a conservation ask to go forth and do from each episode. What would you like my audience to take from your episode?
1: Yeah, know your fishermen. Know okay. who catches your fish. The big guys don't have the time or the resources to market their own fish, and so one of the best things that you can do for a local fisherman, who are, in my view, the best stewards of the resource, is to know who caught your fish, and and that can go a long way towards. Conserving the resources of our ocean.
0: Perfect. And if listeners want to find you, connect with you, or learn more about uh, Sitka Salmon Shares, where's the best place to do so?
1: yo no, oh yeah. I didn't even plug uh, www.sitkasalmonshares.com. We have a little website, and if you if you Google us, there's quite a few writings and uh, media that you can find that tell us a little bit more about our company and how we were founded and why we do what we do and why we're such strong advocates for small-scale community-based fisheries and what that means for our coastal communities and fish populations and of course for eaters who are just going to get into their homes better fish and better defined as not only tastier it will taste better than any fish you've ever had because you've got somebody who really cares about the, the quality of the fish but you know it's better because it's better for the, for the planet and better for these uh, small-scale fishermen who are just trying to oftentimes survive in an age of consolidation and industrialization.
0: Thank you. And I'll put a link to that and everything we chatted about today in the show notes as well for listeners. Nick, this is really fun. Thank you for hopping on the podcast today and chatting with me. Yep. It's been my pleasure. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.